Thanks, Josh, and thanks, Damien, for reading the passage out. Uh, It's been great to uh, spend some time in Isaiah these past uh, few weeks preparing for today. Uh, And I echo Lee's comments from last week. The St. Helens Bishopsgate uh, website has some fantastic uh, resources for those of us who are studying Isaiah uh, and working through them in our Bible study groups as well. I wonder, in your life so far, have you ever experienced an event that was so significant, so overwhelming or maybe so traumatic, uh, that you've never forgotten it, that it's shaped the way that you felt and acted on that topic from that point forward? As kids growing up, uh, mum was involved in a car accident at the end of the road that we lived on. Uh, While mum wasn't hurt, the other person uh, in the other car had whiplash. Uh, And I think that that event impacted on us. Uh, Dad was always talking about road safety uh, and we we picked it up as kids. Uh, And then Dad had a friend involved in a truck accident a bit later as well. Uh, And so I think for all four of us kids, that stayed with us. uh, And that's probably the reason why Rach and I both drive very white, boring, safe cars. Uh, Rach is always complaining to me the car beeps at her when she even thinks about doing something unsafe. Uh, Eleanor Roosevelt is quoted as saying, you need to learn from the mistakes of others because you cannot live long enough to make them all yourself. Uh, and today we will be looking at a, a sad passage from Israel's history uh, from a disaster that will befall Israel. And I pray today as we We see this passage today as the people of Judah were intended to see it uh, and hear it when they originally uh, heard it from Isaiah, that it would be a lesson from the mistakes of others as a cautionary tale of where not to go and what not to do, and ultimately of how we can respond to this lesson of where hope can always be found in trying times. Find a little clicker, bring up the map. There we go. might be a bit small. Uh, We come to chapter 9 of Isaiah this morning. uh, And you will recall by this time in Israel's history, things have changed significantly from the peak of the promised land when the full united 12 tribes held the land all the way from Kadesh in the south to Sidon in the north. And that's what we're looking at in the slides behind us. That was the, the peak or the zenith of the promised land. Following this peak, uh, following King Solomon, King Solomon's son Rehoboam succeeded him and following an unwise response to his subjects by Rehoboam, in around 930 BC, the country split into two kingdoms, the kingdom of Israel in the north with ten tribes. I'll stand on one leg. (laughs) Could I get you to just put that forward, Dev? That's it. Uh, so the kingdom in the, of Israel in the north, including the cities of Shechem and Samaria with the uh, with ten tribes, and the kingdom of Judah in the south, containing the city of Jerusalem with two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. And so by the time we progress even further through time to the 8th century BC, the late 8th century BC and Isaiah's time, the kingdom of Judah find themselves in a very tight situation. They are facing threats from foreign nations such as Assyria and others around them. And to make matters worse, we learned a couple of weeks ago in in Isaiah 7 
that the northern kingdom, their own kinsmen, are conniving with other nations around them to take Judah, divide the spoils, and appoint a puppet king in the son of Tobiel. For us, sitting in comfortable Melbourne, far away from modern-day conflict and war-torn areas, this is probably a little hard for us to imagine what it must have felt like. So I want you to uh, to imagine for a second that you're out in your garden, uh, or maybe the botanical gardens, uh, if you don't have one, uh, obviously a decent size yourself, and you're out there one sunny morning taking in the sounds and the sights around you, and you see a worm wriggling in the soil. But then you notice the bird sitting up in a tree nearby expectantly, just waiting for the right moment to swoop down and devour the worm. Then you look around and notice the family cat sitting very still under a bush, just waiting for the bird to swoop down so the cat can grab the bird while it goes for the worm. And then to make it even worse, you notice the family dog sitting behind the family cat, waiting for the action to start so it can take the cat out while the cat's distracted with the bird. This picture gives us some understanding of the situation of this little southern kingdom of Judah. To use the analogy, Judah was the worm. The bird, well, that was Israel, just to their north, even though Israel had no right to that title. Then further north above the bird was the cat, and that was the kingdom of Syria, which was bigger and stronger still. And then lying in wait for the cat was the dog, the great big strong kingdom of Assyria. Assyria was after Syria, Syria was after Israel, Israel was after little Judah, and little Judah was scared stiff. (laughs) And so it was into this context that we find Isaiah this morning preaching God's word to Judah. However, you'll note something a little unusual about today's passage. It started in verse 8 with these words, The Lord has sent a message against Jacob. It will fall on Israel. The message today is about Israel, not about Judah. There's no reason to think that Isaiah has suddenly picked up sticks and moved to the northern climes of Israel. There's no reason to think uh, Isaiah's gone anywhere at all. He's still in Judah. Uh, And therefore, we can conclude that this passage is written to the southern kingdom of Judah, but about the northern kingdom of Israel as a lesson for Judah. Uh, And we'll see as a lesson, it's a confronting picture of what it looks like when a nation walks away from the Lord. Thanks, Steph. Uh, So what was the lesson? Uh, The first clue is in the structure of the passage. Four times in this passage we see the same phrase repeated. First in verse 12, then 17, and then 21, and again in chapter 10, verse 4. Yet for all this, his anger is not turned away, his hand is still upraised. And this repeated phrase splits the passage into four discrete sections. Each section contains a word picture of Israel's sin and then the consequences of that sin for Israel. And we see, don't we, a recurring theme, Israel has made the Lord angry. Raf mentioned, uh, I thought very helpfully, a few weeks ago that as we read through the prophets, we get to see up close and personal uh, the character of God, the things that make God tick, the things that make God feel a certain way. Uh, And we'll see today what makes our Lord angry. 
when he talks about his people in Israel. So in verse 9, we see the first sin that makes God angry is pride. All the people will know it, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say with pride and arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen down, but we were rebuilt with dressed stone. The fig trees have been felled, but we will replace them with cedars. Of all the things the Lord could have highlighted first, he highlights pride. And it's not pride in the Syrians or in the Philistines or in the Assyrians. No, it's pride in the hearts of his own people, Israel. Pride is a tricky thing. In Proverbs 6, it lists six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. And you can probably guess what's very first in that list. is haughty or proud eyes. Jonathan Edwards, the great American preacher, said that pride is the worst viper in the human heart, the greatest disturber of souls, most difficult of all sins to root out, and the most hidden and deceitful of all lusts. Pride has set itself up in the hearts and minds of the people of Israel. They are self-reliant and self-boasting. What does it matter if the bricks have fallen down? We'll simply replace them with fancy marble. Ah, what if a, a common fig tree falls over? We'll simply replant with expensive cedar. And we see that there are consequences to this pride. In verse 12, Aramaeans from the east and Philistines from the west have devoured Israel with open mouth. I don't know if you've ever seen a pie-eating competition up close. I was going to call on the youth group uh, today, but they're away. Uh, it's, it's not a very pretty uh, picture to see. Uh, this is the analogy that God is using here. Israel's enemies are lining up to stuff their mouths full of the spoils of Israel. Their mouths are so full they can't even close them to chew properly. While pride itself might be hidden, uh, its consequences are painful and ugly. When Rachel and I were living in New Zealand, the senior pastor at our church was a guy by the name of Rusty, an American guy. Uh, and when he wanted to move from the theory of a passage to the application, he'd always say the same thing. He'd say, so how do we take this from our heads to our hearts? Well, what about for us this morning? I think one way that we can take this from our heads to our hearts is by asking ourselves a question on pride. If we're honest with ourselves, if we looked deep enough, would we find elements of pride even in our own hearts? The nature of pride, as Jonathan Edward notes, it can often be hidden and difficult to see. What areas of our lives are we attempted to allow pride just, just a little foothold, just a little dwell time before we try to dispel it? Perhaps we sometimes find ourselves relying on our own judgment and experience rather than relying on God first for his leading. Maybe we presume that our apparent godliness means that we couldn't possibly fall into that sin, no, that others might succumb to it, but, but we couldn't ourselves. Maybe we find ourselves becoming judgmental of those who make poor life choices rather than merciful and gracious. Or maybe we find it difficult to say sorry, to, to genuinely apologise when, as we all do, we make a mistake. Where could my pride lead? Where could your pride lead if left unchecked? Now, there may be some this morning here that, uh, or, uh, or on the, uh, the webcast that are experiencing a bit of a problem. You might be thinking, actually, Andy, I don't think I've got any pride in my life. I think I'm pretty clear, thanks very much. 
And I would agree with you, this is a bit of a problem. But I have good news, stress not, I have a solution to your problem. I can reveal exclusively to you this morning, uh, and everyone listening on the, on the line, uh, a highly sophisticated and deeply developed method to help you identify a pride in your life. Uh, and uh, one that's been tested by time, and what's more, it's specifically tailored to each one of you. Are you ready to hear the solution? Ask your spouse. You knew that was coming, didn't you? Uh, or your sister or your brother, your mum or your dad, even your flatmate or your best friend. And I suspect you won't be disappointed. Now, I did in fact test this method out myself uh, this week, and I can tell you it was highly successful. I didn't come away empty-handed from that interaction. Uh, I do believe one of the reasons... God puts uh, each other, uh, our fellow Christians in our lives, is to help keep us humble, to help us know when there's parts of our lives that we need to bring before the Lord. Perhaps, like me, God is also showing you today an area of pride in your life that you need to talk to God about with a repentant heart. As we progress through to verse 13, we come to the second picture of Israel's sin. But the people have not returned to him who struck them, nor have they sought the Lord Almighty. Despite watching their enemies devour their land, despite watching that historic promised land crumble and shrink around them, Israel refuses to repent and turn back to the Lord. And so in this second scene, God again brings consequences, this time against the leadership of the country in verse 14. So the Lord will cut off from Israel both head and tail, both palm branch and reed in a single day. The elder or honoured man is the head and the prophet is the tail. If you think of a dog, the head and the tail help to give sight and direction to the rest of the body, don't they? The elders and the prophets, they should be working together to help sustain and encourage their people to follow the Lord faithfully. Instead, the leaders, while they're leading their people astray and the prophets, they're telling the people what they want to hear. By this stage in the prophecy, things are starting to look a little glum for Israel. And like any good catastrophe or disaster, people's thoughts soon turn to who can be blamed for this mess. Uh, And we see in verse 15, responsibility starts with the elders and dignitaries and the prophets. In other words, the leaders and religious teachers of the day. I was once given a book called You Don't Need a Title to Be a Leader, And I suspect it's never been truer than today with mass media and particularly social media. Uh, Influencer is a very in word at the moment. Uh, I understand that if enough people want to hear what you're saying, you could even make a full-time living by being an influencer. Uh, Rach and I were laughing the other night at an influencer called NASA. And NASA was telling people, look, you might have been on Instagram for a while and you've wanted someone famous to follow you but nobody has yet. Well, if you pay me, NASA, $5, I can follow you. I can click that little link and you'll know that you have someone famous following your account in Instagram. Now, apparently it was for a good cause to help those involved with domestic violence. I'm not sure how much money has been raised so far, but I'll bet you hundreds, if not thousands of people have seen that post. There are many people being listened to today, and with that comes a level of responsibility. We know from other passages in the Bible that those in positions 
of influence, our leaders and pastors carry a higher responsibility and a special accountability, and it's no different here in Israel. I think this should encourage each of us to pause and consider for ourselves, who are those that I lead and who are those that I influence? What kind of influence am I having on those around me? Are my words and my actions leading people towards God uh, or are they leading them in some other direction? Despite the higher responsibility of our leaders, we also see in verses 16 and 17 the people themselves bear responsibility for their actions. Not only are the leaders trying to lead people astray, but the people are allowing themselves to be led astray. They're not putting up any kind of resistance. And because both the leader, the leaders and the people are turning away from the Lord, the Lord's heart towards the people of Israel is changing. The Lord is even turning away from those areas of life that he especially cherishes. You see there, he will take no pleasure in the young men, the young men who are typically the military might and the future leaders of the country, nor will he pity the fatherless, the fatherless being in special need of grace and care and support. Do you get the sense that God is stepping back from his people at this point, that the nation of Israel has turned so far away from the Lord that he is starting to turn away from them? Let this be a warning, Isaiah is saying to Judah. Be warned so that this never happens to you. We now come to the third frame or picture of Israel's sin as we look at the second half of verse 17. We won't dwell on this section, but we'll pause here for a short period. By this stage in Israel's downward journey, the Lord has surveyed the nation. He's looked all around and he's concluded... For everyone is ungodly and wicked, every mouth speaks folly. General ungodliness and wickedness has permeated through the nation. The Lord continues to see wicked acts and foolish talks. And this ungodliness is no longer hidden behind pride. It's no longer hidden with the the sort of false righteousness of unrepentance. Well, they've progressed. They don't even bother to hide their sin anymore. It's on display for all to see. And as always, sin carries consequences we see wickedness itself bears natural consequences. It burns and consumes those that are caught up in it, like a fire consumes briars and thorns, or like a forest fire races upward in a column of smoke. We visited three pictures of Israel's sin so far, uh, one more to go. Now, let me tell you, at this point in writing today's talk, it was feeling pretty heavy going, and if I'm feeling that, I suspect you probably are too. Uh, during uni, I went on a number of hikes uh, around Victoria with some of my mates. On one memorable hike in Wilson's Promontory, we took a wrong turn early in the day and ended up in thick, prickly bush, so thick we almost needed a machete to cut through the bush. Of course, we weren't going to turn back. We kept going. Uh, it was so thick we had to take it in turns up the front, sort of pushing the scrub out of the way so people behind us could make their way through. Uh, After hours of bush bashing and scratched arms and legs, we finally got to a point on a hill where we could see the scrub ahead was thinning and the terrain would be easier uh, and clearer going forward. Can I encourage you, we're at a similar point now in today's message. We have just one picture left on our viewing tour of Israel's sin uh, and then we'll be out into the clearer terrain and the tone will change. 
So let us now push ahead into chapter 10 and we'll clear this final swath of scrub. By this stage, you might have noticed the first three pictures, they were very focused on the people themselves and the wrongful attitudes and behaviours that the people were caught up in. You might say they were about raw passions or spontaneous sins, you know, like a a young child that sees a toy they want and in the moment spontaneously reaches out and grabs it. However, in this fourth picture now, we see that Israel's sin has progressed. It's no longer just spontaneous and raw. They found a way to embed their sin into the laws and the justice system itself. New oppressive decrees have been written by the powerful to penalise the weak and take away the rights of the poor. Israel has progressed from first pride and then repentance the third wickedness, and then finally the fourth sin of legalised wrongdoing. And tragically, we see that this fourth sin will carry grave consequences for the nation of Israel. You see it there in chapter 10, verse 4. Nothing will remain but to cringe among the captives or fall among the slain. The people of Israel will either be slain in battle or taken as captives by their victors. Amazingly, even after all of this has happened, there has been no repentance by the nation of Israel, no turning back to the Lord that gave them this promised land. And so verse 4 ends with that same refrain, yet for all this, his anger is not turned away, his hand is still upraised. God's heart still yearns for his people to repent, to seek forgiveness, to turn back to him, but they don't. And so finishes the fourth and final picture in this passage of Israel's sin. Well, this has indeed been sobering and confronting reading for us this morning. Why? Why the need for Judah to know the story of Israel in such graphic detail? Because God's purpose in this passage is not for his people to ignore the lesson, but to heed the lesson. Judah are at a very real risk of making the same mistakes that Israel is making. They too are under significant pressure from the nations all around them. And God is reminding and warning Judah again, as he has already done in the past, what will happen if they put their trust in other nations rather than in God. And I think the lesson that God has for them can be summarised like this. Do not trust in yourselves. Do not trust in other nations. Do not trust in other religions because they will all ultimately let you down. But the good news is that the message doesn't end here. God is seeking a response to this lesson, a response in the people of Judah that will bring a wonderful response from the Lord in turn. So now let us look at the response. How is this little nation of Judah under threat from these larger and more powerful nations all around them, meant to react to this message. And the key is in verse 3 of chapter 10. You've probably already seen it there. A big question that demands an answer. What will you do on the day of reckoning? To whom will you run for help? The response is as obvious as the prophet sent to them. They are being called to run to the Lord for their help. The Lord is the only one strong enough to save them. He is the only one loving enough to seek their good and not their harm. He is the only one not caught up 
in the cynical and self-serving politics of the people and the other kings of the time. And there's an urgency, isn't there? This looming day of reckoning is not far off. It will be here soon. The Lord is saying here, stand firm, do not waver, remain faithful to me. Today is the day I need you to remember that I am the Lord. I am your Lord. I am the one who saves you. And as a mark and a sign of the trustworthiness of my word that I give you today through Isaiah, well, you will see and hear this prophecy for Israel come to pass. It's going to happen in front of their eyes. It's on their very northern border. Though you may be only a worm in the eyes of Israel or Assyria, yet I, the Lord, see you. I care about you. And what's more, I, the Lord, am powerful and trustworthy to protect you. So as we shift our gaze from the 8th century BC to the 21st century AD in modern Australia and Melbourne, well, this passage is just as relevant for us today. We too might look around our country and see several similarities with what was happening in the nation of Israel at the time. We too will greatly benefit from heeding the lesson of Israel's demise. Our God remains unchanged, doesn't he, through time? He's no different today than he was for Isaiah. Isaiah 9 is but one of many prophecies that the Lord gave that would later be foretold, just as the Lord had said. If you like, you can read in 1 Chronicles chapter 5 about the fulfillment of Isaiah 9, how God stirred up the spirit of Pul, king of Assyria, who took the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh into exile. And this prophecy is then thought to have finally culminated in about 722 BC with the full exile of the entire northern kingdom into Assyria. Those ten tribes then pass out of record. They are known as the ten lost tribes. Now, of course, for us today, as we hear this message, we sit on the other side of the cross, don't we? 700 odd years after Isaiah's time, our Lord Jesus came to earth. He lived a perfect life. He died a sacrificial death and he rose again in victory on the third day. And we had the privilege of Morris leading us today in communion. Thank you, Morris. If we needed further confirmation that our God is not a vindictive God, but a loving and gracious God, then we need look no further than the life, death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. We see right through the Bible the love of God for giving his people over and over again, sending messenger after messenger to warn his people to bring them back as a father would welcome his children back. So if the desired response to this lesson is that we, like Judah, would stand firm in our faith, we would continue to put our trust in him, then what does that look like? And I thought it was great, uh, Morris, today you said that we can easily forget, can't we? And as we look at the nation of Israel, they had forgotten. They'd forgotten this powerful and loving God who'd put them into the promised land in the first place. How can we remember the deeds and promises of our Lord, and not just in our minds, but in our heart, mind and soul? There are many ways to do this, of course, but let me venture three ways this morning to help you in your own application of this passage. Do you find it encouraging to look back on the years of your life 
And remember the times where the Lord has clearly answered your prayers, where you've clearly seen God at work in unexpected ways. Does this help you remember God's goodness and faithfulness to you? Do you find it exciting to meet with God's people regularly and hear people's testimonies, the way God has saved people and the way God is continuing to work through their lives each and every day? Could this help you remember God's goodness and faithfulness? How important is a daily dose of God's truth, whether through reading God's word, through prayer, listening to a podcast or maybe sharing a verse with a friend? Could this help you remember God's goodness and faithfulness? Well, I suspect these and many more that you can no doubt think of are wonderful ways of remembering God's goodness and faithfulness to each one of us. Let's make sure that we continue to have these items in our lives. So in conclusion, for all of us here this morning, I trust that you've been not only confronted with the tragic story of Israel's pride and unrepentance, but on the foundation of that lesson have also been comforted. Comforted that we have a Lord and Saviour who is as good as his word, is as powerful as knowing the future, and is as loving and gracious as a father to his children. And it is this merciful and loving God who holds out his arms to each one of us to heed the lesson of Israel and put our trust in God and in God alone. Mm-hmm.